Okay, turn to James chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at patient endurance in suffering. James 5, I want to read the paragraph that our lesson is coming from. It's going to be verses 7 through 11. So if you'll follow along, I'll, I'll read that here, uh, that section. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. There's no need for me to explain what suffering is. We all have had our measure of it in our life, heavily. From our paragraph here that we just read, James is going to use, it looks like, some of their own suffering, but he wants to talk about the bigger topic of patient endurance. And I want to talk about that this morning because from this paragraph, we learn five really important things about standing firm, or we would say patient endurance. First, this patient endurance helps us wait for the Lord's coming. Waiting for the Lord's coming was a major teaching in the early church. Uh, at First Thessalonians, in Paul's letters to the Christian there, uh, they had a hard time, it seemed, waiting for the Lord's coming. They were wanting it to come right now. The patient endurance that he's going to talk about, that we wait until the Lord's coming. And it's interesting, I noticed uh, again this morning, I reread this paragraph Twice in this paragraph, this section, he taught, he used the expression, the Lord's coming. The Lord's coming was a part of the major teaching in the early church. The Lord is coming. And patient endurance helps us wait for the Lord's coming. Because guess what? For 2,000 years, he hasn't come. So when we say the Lord is coming, we have to recognize that there is patient endurance in waiting for that coming. This patient endurance is illustrated by the farmer. He waits for the harvest. Some translations say here, and I love this, that instead of just the word harvest, it's literally the phrase, the, the precious fruit of the earth. And in the ancient world, that's truly what it was. When you had a harvest, that was a precious fruit of the earth. And they were looking forward to it, and they lived by it. Well, he's going to look at the farmer. Notice that the farmer has to wait for the early rain and the latter rain for there to be a harvest. And he has to be patient, and he has to wait. That's the hardest thing for a gardener, because you're looking at things you plant. Well, come on, hurry up, hurry up. Especially when the tomatoes start coming in, and you see them hanging there, and they're big, and they're green, and they don't seem like they're going to turn red. You're like, hurry up, hurry up. 
Well, no, there is no hurry up. You have to be patient and you have to wait. This patient endurance, he says to the readers, it's important because I want you to stand firm. So there's a strong relationship between patient endurance and standing firm. This idea of standing firm, I want to illustrate with two things. Because it has the idea of buttressing something and also fixing something to strengthen it. Um, a few years ago, we discovered that our back deck wasn't hooked to the house like it should be. That was like, what? So I don't know if the builders just overlooked it or what. And, and the deck had sunk an inch. I was like, this is not good. So I went and bought some four by four posts and I put them under that deck and that deck's not going anywhere now because I buttressed that deck. So we know, we know what it means to buttress something, to shore it up so nothing's going to happen. The other idea here is to strengthen something. Uh, and I think for our 40th anniversary, and I was thinking through this, Nancy, you may need to correct me on this, but I thought, you know what? 40th anniversary, that's a pretty important milestone. And that's when we bought our dining room set that's in the dining room for our 40th anniversary. And it was, it was a pretty set. It looks like, a to me, a, a, a country dining table. It's a cute table. But as we got to using it, I, I realized that the chairs were, were moving on us. Like, what is this? So I turned the chairs upside down, and how they constructed it was not good at all. Because all it would take would be one person scooting back on the rug on that chair, and I guarantee you the whole thing would come apart. So I told this, I'm going to fix that and strengthen it. So I spent a whole day turning upside down all of those chairs and gluing and screwing and even putting in metal angle iron in the, up in the corner. So now you can sit an elephant on chairs <laughs> and they're not going to move. And so you, you understand what I say. It's fascinating that James here is telling his readers, strengthen your faith. Buttress that faith that you've got. So there's some work to do. You can't just go along and flip through life and just say, okay, I got a strong faith. Well, my question to you would be, what have you done to make it strong? See? Now you may say, well, I rely on the Lord. Well, yeah, I, that's a starting point. What else have you done? You know, you have to intentionally strengthen your faith. It's not just going to happen just because you want it to. We're going to see in a moment the two significant factors in the early church that made this mandate waiting for the Lord's return necessary. You see, Jesus' coming was delayed year after year. So you think about how, after a while, if you had teachers and preachers saying, okay, the Lord is coming. In fact, he even says again here, you know, the Lord's coming is near. You notice how he says that. Well, how near you don't know. And I suspect that some Christians would have thought, well, they continue to say to us, the Lord's coming is near. Well, where is he? Where is he? And in fact, we find in other places in the New Testament, there are Christians who said, well, and this is, I think it's in 2 Peter. Well, where's the sign of his coming? Everything just keeps on going like it's always gone on. Well, if you take on that mindset, you're not going to be ready when he comes back. Be prepared for his coming. And 
of course, the unbearable suffering that some of them were going through. And I don't know if it's going back to the previous section there of referring to the people who are suffering because of being defrauded of the paycheck, you know, by the owners of the field. And it, I'm sure that was included, but there's other uh, sources. But because they were going through unbearable un, uh, suffering, I think it was forcing some of the Christians to ask, how long is it going to be till Jesus comes again? How much longer do we have to put up with this? And when you read through the book of Revelation, that really comes through strongly. Christians going through persecution and crying out, how long, O Lord, how long? And Jesus is saying in Revelation, I'm coming soon. Listen to Revelation 6.11. Then each of them was given a white robe. This is in the picture when uh, Christians are persecuted. They're given a white robe, and they're told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Wait a little longer. Patient endurance helps us wait for the Lord's coming. It's coming. We just have to be patient. This patient endurance helps us in our relationships with one another. And, and you may not have caught this, but look what he says. Don't grumble against each other or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Some of the strongest language about God and who God is and his function. And here it's, it's, it's judged. Some of the strongest language about God has to do with people uh, abused, uh, are unfaithful, uh, destroy relationships. God's not going to sit by and say that's okay. No. In fact, and here's what we don't know. Well, I wish I wish he'd give it a little sidebar here. Don't grumble against each other. What, what were they grumbling about? This is a fascinating thing to think about. Patient endurance with one another is necessary for a variety of reasons. And here he's talking about grumbling with one another. Sometimes we may say something that another person may say something we totally disagree with. They may say something that gets on their nerves because every time I go up to them, they harp on something. Or somebody may be saying something untrue about us. There's a whole host of reasons. But for James, this patient endurance is invoked in the situation of not grumbling against one another. <clears throat> one person says this idea of grumbling contains this, uh, this notion of it denotes a feeling with internal and unexpressed uh, a sigh or a groan, and you're frustrated with the other person. So have you ever been frustrated with somebody for whatever reason? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we all get frustrated all the time. Well, even that, we might think that's a small thing, but James is saying if you're not careful, grumbling itself can destroy relationships. Do Christians ever frustrate one another? Of course. Do we ever mutter beneath our breath about what someone has done or is doing? Oh yeah, we're all, we're all guilty of that. James is addressing the danger and the potential damage of suppressing our feelings toward one another when we grumble against one another. You see, even though he doesn't indicate what the grumbling was about, it was so significant for James that in this letter, this section on patient endurance, he wants to highlight and say, listen, 
you've got to learn to patiently endure with one another. This patient endurance helps us in the face of suffering. We know that suffering is inevitable in life. We have to face it head on. Whether it's physical or emotional or mental, psychological or relational suffering, it all amounts to the same thing. The end result is pain. And we don't do pain well, do we? <laughs> Most of us don't. We don't do pain well. James goes on to describe special kind of suffering that's experienced because his readers are being, they're going through it because of their faithfulness. And he's going to be, he's going to use two illustrations. I'm going to look at these closely. The first one is the prophets. And then he's going to talk about Job. Patient endurance in the face of suffering is illustrated by the prophets. And you may remember when we went through the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, there was that whole section. And he brought up the prophets being faithful. Here's what he says in 11.32. Well, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. Well, what do these prophets do? Why does James just all of a sudden have said prophets? Well, listen to the next verse in Hebrews 11.33. These prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flame, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. These prophets were individuals who had responded to the call of God in their life. And with patient endurance, they fulfilled that call and they took whatever came. In the face of suffering, they didn't change them at all. Patient endurance in the face of suffering is also illustrated by Job. Now, the author doesn't go into detail, and again, I find this fascinating. He just makes <coughs> the case of Job. And you know how that turned out with God. And then, then he moves on. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, what do you mean? Well, Apparently, uh, this is fascinating to me, early Christian churches and communities, a lot of their teaching came out of the stories of the Old Testament. And, and we're, we shouldn't be surprised about that. So what do you think that the congregation that James is writing to, I wonder what they would have heard about the story of Job. Well, when I went back and looked at it, uh, there's a couple of things that really stand out. One is the five specific ways that he suffered. He had five specific things. And it's interesting the way they're portrayed in the book of Job. It goes from one to the next. And, and it's almost like that what he went through, if it came wave after wave and there wasn't even stopping to it. Have you ever had the have you ever heard someone say, or you said this, well, you know, bad things, bad things come in threes. I've had two today, so I'm looking for the third one. People will say that. Well, but we realize that in life sometimes those things that we suffer and that are painful, it just seems like they come one on the heel after another. Like, is this ever going to stop? And that's what that's what Job experienced. First of all, we find out that the cattle and oxen and some of his servants were killed by the marauding group called the Sabaeans. 
don't know all the history behind that, but and then another one. But here's the second thing that happened. It says the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and killed servants. Wow, what kind of lightning storm must that have been? But the fire of God fell from heaven. The third one, the Chaldeans formed a raiding party and they swept down on uh, Job's holdings. And what did they do? They took off camels and they made off uh, with their servants. And some of the servants that said they put to the sword. So again, I mean, people are really causing some suffering for Job. Another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept through, came in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house, and it collapsed on them. And they're all dead. And I'm the only one who's escaped to Teddy. So what happened? Here, he lost um, his sons and daughters. <clears throat> and they were at the older brother's house. And there was some party going on. So suddenly that wind came in and destroyed the house and killed them. Kind of reminds you of what's happened this past week when the storm went through, uh, was it Alabama? Georgia? Pacific, Pacific. The storm went through the night, killed 25 people. Notice, here's what the writer says. After these misfortunes are portrayed as coming in successive waves, here's what the writer says in Job. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Wow, really? So I'm made to wonder, how then can you do that? And this isn't the end of the story. The next chapter, something else happens to him. Why don't you listen to this description? So he's lost cattle, sheep, family, lost a lot of things. Well, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And it was so painful that Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself as he sat in ashes. I can't imagine. But again, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. There's a word that gets used four times in the book of Job, and it is crucial. And uh, there were a number of years reading through Job, I never caught it. Now, in this passage, in, in James, it talks about the King James Version would say the patience of Job. Really, the best word is patient endurance. Because there are times when Job takes an 